Well, it's wonderful to be with you. I was just reminded as I was sitting there of a Sunday evening back in May, and um, I had a lady with me from, um, she'd grown up in North Korea, and she was um, in her 70s now and, and was staying with my family. And uh, in her life experience, um, her and her husband and children had had to flee um, North Korea in the 1990s because there was a famine that killed about three million people in North Korea just because of abject poverty. Um, she was then living in China, um, had escaped across the border, and um, effectively encountered the underground church in China and was looked after, was cared for, experienced the generosity and, and warmth of just these Chinese Christians and really just encountered Jesus in the midst of being in China. Then her and her husband were um, discovered by the secret police and they were repatriated to North Korea. And they were then punished for the fact that they'd escaped and they were put in um, uh, political prison camps or re-education centers. As we're sitting here tonight, there's about 80,000 Christians that are in those prison camps in North Korea. That's a big number, isn't it? It's a big stat. But behind those stats is the story of individual people just like you and I who were born in North Korea and yet have encountered Jesus in the way that we've encountered Jesus. And because of following Jesus, have been put in prison. She was in uh, prison camps for a number of years. Um, as a result of torture in those prison camps, her husband died in prison. Um, her daughter died in prison as well. And there was many moments that she talked where she felt despairing, really, because of the environment that she was in. She described uh, one moment to me that she was lying on the concrete cell floor of her cell, having endured about two days' worth of fairly significant torture. Um, and she lay on the floor and she said she just saw Jesus came into the cell with her and said to her, today my daughter, you walked on water. And when she shared that story with me, just the emotion of the memory of that moment just overwhelmed her again. And you knew that she really had encountered Jesus. And somehow that encounter with Jesus had given her grace and strength to overcome all of the suffering that she'd been through. Anyway, she was um, staying with us on this Sunday evening and um, she said to me, she said, Sam, I really wanted while I was here to be able to go to, to Wales. This was the day before she was going to go home and I live just down the road from here. And I looked at my diary and as you'd expect, Monday had quite a lot of stuff going on. But uh, it's not every day that you get a request from um, a North Korean refugee in their 70s. So I, I cleared my diary, got up early, we drove down the M5, the M50, and ended up in a place called Abergavenny. Anybody here from Abergavenny? No? Um, and we ended up at this little chapel called Hanover Chapel in Abergavenny. You could very, very easily miss it and pulled up, walked into the little yard, and uh, went to the front door and and the, 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 the church leader, we managed to connect with him and he was willing to show us around. And so we, we, we got to the front door and, uh, and Haywood walked across the threshold and as she walked across the threshold, she burst into tears. And it was quite hard to recover her from the tears and I said, are you okay? And she said, I can't believe that I'm in the place from which the gospel of Jesus Christ first came to my nation. 
And back in 1863, a young man called Robert Germain Thomas, who was 23, had felt God lay on his heart a burden for the Far East. He'd gone to China. When he was in China, he felt God burden him for Korea. And so he went down the Pyongyang River and, uh, and took Bibles, and he distributed these Bibles along the way to people who were on the banks of the river. At one point, he was, a boat was attacked, and he was sent packing and told to not come back. Two years later, in 1866, he felt a real sense of compulsion from God that he needed to go back and he needed to meet those people he'd met with before, encourage them and strengthen them. In Acts chapter 14, there's a story that we read of Paul and he's been beaten at Lystra and Iconium and they've left him for dead because they've beaten him so badly. Then in the beginning of chapter 14, it says, he then went back to the believers in Lystra, Iconium and strengthened them in the Lord. He went back to the place that had tried to kill him. And, uh, and so Robert Germain Thomas went back on this journey from which he barely recovered his life the first time. And he met with some of the communities again. He gave Bibles out again. And then he got to this point in the river and his boat was attacked and set on fire and he was taken to the shore with his Bibles. And effectively he was executed on the shore and the Bibles fell where he lay. Now it's impossible to absolutely confirm historical details from that time ago, but a lot of the the, um, the story that exists within the Korean church is that people then took those Bibles that were by Robert Germain um, Thomas's body, and one of the men, he took the Bible and he wallpapered the inside of his house with the pages of the Bible. And many people say that that's where they first heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And so for this lady, Haywoo, hey, as we walked over the threshold of Hanover Chapel, she was overwhelmed and overcome with gratitude for the gospel for which she'd suffered so much. And then she got up at the pulpit, which is all these fancy old stairs, and she stood there like this, and she prayed for the UK. She prayed for us as the church in the UK that we would realize just the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And she prayed for North Korea, and she prayed for Wales, that there'd be a fresh move of God in Wales like there had been in years gone by. Now, I don't know what, how you feel listening to that, but for me, being there with her, my heart was suddenly overwhelmed. Lord Jesus, I'm not sure that my heart is as soft to the good news of the gospel as Haywoo's. I'm not sure that there's that gratitude and that tenderness in me. I feel like maybe I've lost something of the joy of salvation, that it's just become a part of my life rather than the, the main event. And so God really used this little lady in her 70s to rekindle in me just a yearning, a desire, a hunger to want to know Jesus in the fullness of who he is. And when you meet Christians around the world who are counting the cost for their faith, it causes you to think, is this faith worth more than I currently understand or believe? What do my behaviors tell me about how much this belief has sent a place in my life? There's a story in the Old, Des Old Testament set in the, the sixth century before Jesus. Um, at the time where there was an exile, the, uh, the, the nation of Judah, who had been invited into the covenant by God to be in this relationship with God, but to remain within this relationship, there needed to be certain behavioral practices that were in your life. And they were consistently walking in their own paths. They were consistently compromising and picking up all of the behaviors of the nations around them rather than living in a God-centered way. 
And God sent prophets like Jeremiah to challenge them and say, guys, you can't keep living like this. The way that you are living is completely inconsistent with enjoying relationship with God. Not only are you not living in the fullness of that relationship, but you're also causing other people to not see the good news of what God represents. And uh, Jeremiah prophesied that they would be basically taken captivity. And in the 6th century, this happens. The Babylonian Empire come in and they exile a lot of uh, the nation of of Judah um, into Babylon. And one of the first moves they do is they they take a lot of the older teenagers, those who are attractive, uh, good-looking, so I would have been left in Judah. But uh, they take those people that they think have got, you know, all of the things of worldly kind of esteem and power and presence and kind of articulateness and attractive and a strong, and they bring them into the, the king's courtyard. And the, the intention is that they are going to become, you know, the wise people in the land. They're going to be educated and developed um, according to all of the laws of the land, all of the cultic practices and behaviors. And then they are going to be those that, that serve the king. But in the midst of that, you, you've got these three uh, lads, uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You probably know their story as well. And it's very easy that we write off these significant moments in history as nice biblical stories. But what we see in this story with um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, particularly in in Daniel chapter 3, is that they have determined to live in a particular way. Even though they're in a context and they're in a culture which is going this way, what they say is we want to continue to live in a God-centered way. We want to live according to the values and the beliefs of the land from which we've been exiled. We don't want to accommodate ourselves to this current environment. We want to live according to the environment which relates to our king, our sovereign, our God. And so as you read in chapter one, they they developed a particular diet that was about staying true to their kind of um, beliefs and practices. And then we get in um, Daniel chapter three, the story of Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king. And he he basically builds this monstrous 90 foot um, tall um, gold statue of himself, nine foot wide, 90 foot tall. And uh, that might just sound, oh, well, that's just so like Old Testament. Um, there are statues bigger than that in North Korea, just so you're aware, where people are expected every day to go and to kind of bow at the start of the day. And if you live in North Korea, you'll have pictures on your bedroom wall or your living room wall of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, the founders of the nation of North Korea. And you're expected in a situation where there is a fire that those are the first possessions in your house that you take for safety, even above your family. There was a man who rescued those and his children died in a fire and he was held up as an example to the nation of a man who was incredibly worthy and honorable. So though this is an Old Testament story, there are contemporary moments where we see those same things. And, and Nebuchadnezzar basically passed this rule that everybody in the land of Babylon needed to worship and bow down uh, to this um, symbol of him and his greatness and his power. And then he finds out that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel made, seems to go under the radar on this occasion. But um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, he's told that they are not bowing down and they are not worshipping this um, statue. And so it says in verse 13, in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue that I have set up? 
They say, now it, then he says, now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, I've never known what a zither is, do tell me afterwards if you know, um, the harp and the drum and every kind of music, fall down and worship these statues that I've made. But if you don't worship, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? This is not kind of like a duck and cover moment. This is a moment where they are presented with the cost of resistance of the cultural environment that they're being invited to submit to. And what did they say? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. I mean, that's cocky, isn't it? That's kind of a bit brazen in front of this guy with so much power who's basically said, I'm going to throw you in the fire. We don't need to give you a reason. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. Now, I mean, that's just like, you know, it's like prodding a bear, isn't it? They're just antagonizing him. They're saying, you may have these great statues, and you may think that you're the big cheese around here, but actually there's a far greater God, there's a far greater king, and it's he that we worship, and we will not bow to you, we will only bow to him. Then he goes on. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that, he, that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Just really antagonizing. Then it says Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know he stoked up the fires to seven times the heat. You know, then his soldiers, as they threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire, they were consumed because of the strength and the, the heat of the fire. So these men are thrown into the fire. And then we read later in the story that Nebuchadnezzar is then watching, and he says, there are four people in the fire. I thought we only threw three in, and the fourth looks like a son of God, a celestial being. And so in the midst of this fiery furnace, God is present with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even though they're in this position of just extreme suffering, God is with them in the midst of it. And we know the end of the story, they, they come out of it. And what is incredible is that King Nebuchadnezzar, who's been so antagonized, ben, but they have been faithful and they've been true, he then turns around completely and speaks this wonderful song out. How great are his miracles and how mighty are his wonders. This is the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He says, may your prosperity increase. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. It's almost an incredible story. This guy has built this statue for the idolization of himself, meets these believers in God who say, we will not submit to you. And he threatens them and says, I will kill you. And they say, but still, we will not serve you. And then this king has this encounter with God. Not only is God present in the fire to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but then Nebuchadnezzar sees the power of God at work because these men have been faithful to him. It's an incredible story of the challenge of counting the cost in the midst of extreme circumstances. I told you the story of Hewu earlier, and Hewu is, is one of 365 million Christians around the world who every day are counting the cost for following Jesus. 
That's a huge number. It's about one-seventh of the global church are living in situations where they don't have the freedoms that we have, that they are persecuted for their faith. In Nigeria alone, more than 5,000 people were abducted last year for their faith. Daniel and his friends were abducted because of being part of the nation of, of Israel and Judah. These stories that we read in both the Old Testament and New Testament are not there alone. If we go to, to 1 Peter, 1 Peter uses this language right at the start of 1 Peter 1. It says, to those chosen, living as exiles. To those who are chosen, but living as exiles. And, and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they were living as exiles in Babylon. But Peter is writing to the believers in northern Turkey and he's saying, you are chosen. And because you are chosen, you are living as exiles. The world that you're in is not your identity. The world that you're in is not your home. You belong to a different kingdom. You belong to a different Lord, a different king. And Peter writes to encourage the believers in a setting where they are facing increasing pressure from around them. He writes to them to say, don't compromise. Don't compromise for something that is temporal. Remain faithful to that which is eternal. A bit like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Don't compromise because of the environment that you're in, because you are in exile. Remain faithful to where you've come from. And in Peter, remain faithful to where you are going to. And in verse 13, 1 Peter 1. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all of your conduct. Conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. And Peter is appealing to the believers to not live small-mindedly, to not compromise to the pressures around them, but to live according to their identity as sons of God as children of God. And it's so easy for us, isn't it, that we compromise in order to fit into our culture. Because what Peter challenges is, is live differently so that those around you will see the reality of God through your faithfulness. What we saw in the story of, with Nebuchadnezzar, he saw through their belligerent <laughs> obedience and faithfulness, he then encountered a God who was real and was more real than he was. He realized he wasn't the big cheese. He wasn't God. God was God. And one of the challenges we face as the church in the contemporary world is how do we not compromise? How do we count the cost? Recognizing that the cost reveals the value of something. The cost reveals the value of something. Jesus talked about the pearl of great price. He talked about the treasure in the field that when you find these treasures that are incomparable in their value, you're willing to give up everything for that. Hey, Wu knew that treasure. And we need to sometimes be reminded of the power of that. I just want to play just a short video which gives you an idea of just the context that Christians around the world are facing at this time, hopefully this week. Could praying put you in danger? Could going to church risk your life? Could following Jesus cost you your job, your home, or your family. Around the world today, 
our Christian brothers and sisters are counting the cost of their faith. And these are the 10 countries where the price of following Jesus is highest. Number 10, Afghanistan. The Taliban hunts for hidden networks of believers. Suspected Christians can be arrested, interrogated, and even killed. And number nine, Iran. House churches are seen as a threat to national security. Pastor Anushavan has started serving a 10-year prison sentence after 30 agents raided his home. Sudan is at number eight. In the chaos and conflict of civil war, Christians are especially vulnerable. Believers have been attacked, their property looted, and churches closed. Number seven, Pakistan. Pakistani Christians are seen as second-class citizens. False accusations of blasphemy result in innocent believers facing mob violence. Christian girls continue to be abducted and forced to convert to Islam. Nigeria is at number six. More Christians are killed for their faith in Nigeria than in all the other countries of the world combined. Pastor Zachariah came home one day to find his village attacked and his wife and son murdered by militants. Number five, Yemen. The very small number of Yemeni Christians must worship in secret. House church leader Saleh is on the wanted list, but despite death threats, he courageously continues his ministry. At number four is Eritrea. Christian activities are severely restricted. When Abdullah told people about Jesus, he was sent to prison. The conditions were so terrible that he never came out alive. Libya is number three on the list. Libya considers itself to be a completely Islamic nation. Libyan believers who tell others about Jesus risk arrest and violent opposition. Number two, Somalia. In this highly restrictive Islamic society, even the suspicion of being a Christian is extremely dangerous. Converts who are discovered may instantly pay with their lives. And at number one, North Korea. This remains the most costly place in the world to be a Christian. Even owning a Bible is illegal. Jiho's father was taken away when security agents discovered his secret book. She never saw him again. Christians are sent to appalling labor camps or simply killed on the spot. More than 365 million Christians face high levels of persecution and discrimination. That's one in seven Christians globally, and every one of them a son or daughter, a mother, a father, a child of God. For nearly 70 years, Open Doors has been supporting our persecuted church family, helping them to stand strong. They are counting the cost of following Christ, and with your help, they can keep believing knowing that Jesus is worth everything. So let's just to pray for a minute, just maybe think about one of those countries and think about Christians just like us in that country. Let's just pray for a moment. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Just want you to know just how valuable your prayers 
are, and I think it's one of the biggest battles that we have to fight, is the battle of our own faith and confidence and conviction that prayer makes a difference. We're so conditioned in the world that we're in to immediate gratification. And if we're not immediately gratified, then there's something wrong. There's something about the dynamic of the kingdom of God that actually immediate gratification, it, it, it's, not, it's not the structure that God has built his kingdom on. It's, the substance of his kingdom is much more eternal and much more enduring than that. But we have to learn how we accommodate ourselves to the nature of life in the kingdom rather than expect God to accommodate himself to the nature of life in this given moment. But your prayers are powerful and effective. And sometimes having the accountability of praying with somebody else can really help with that. And if you <clears throat> meet Christians from around the world and you ask them about the power of prayer, they'll tell you incredible stories of the value to them. Nigeria, you'll have noticed, was on the, the list at, at number six. And if we were ranking the countries in the world based on where um, violent suffering is most extreme, Nigeria would be number one with more than 5,000 Christians killed for their faith last year. I'm delighted to have um, Solomon with us uh, from sub-Saharan Africa, um, who will come up in a moment. Um, for those of you at home, um, you won't be able to see Solomon's face. Um, we have to protect his identity for security for his life in sub-Saharan Africa. And for those of you in, in the room, um, just please don't take any, any photos. Um, and we're just going to chat with Solomon for a few moments. So can you tell us a bit what life is like or has been like over the last year um, for Christians in sub-Saharan Africa? Uh, there are four countries in... Maybe they can show the map. Yeah. Um, Nigeria, Burkina Faso, you can, Niger and Mali, and you can see all of them, all four of them are sharing borders. Since 2009, we've had Boko Haram in the northeast of Nigeria, but from there it has spread to many of the border areas. And from 2012, we had Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb in Mali, and uh, there are other groups, Minjao and several other uh, militant terrorist Islamic groups. And those have grown to, you know, attacking people, attacking Christians in all these four countries, Mali, Niger, um, Burkina Faso, and Nigeria, with the huge numbers of people killed and uh, huge numbers of people displaced. Um, we read about in the story earlier about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and how God was present in the fire with them. In the midst of the suffering in Nigeria, is it, do you hear stories where people are very aware that God is with them in the midst of that, or is there a sense of despair? I would say there are both. Some mentioned that 5,000 people are killed. Um, every, last, last year we reported 5,000. Actually, for the last three to five years, we've been reporting 5,000 people killed every, every one of those years. But then another 5,000 people abducted from their, some from their homes, some from, even from their churches, some while traveling on the road. Uh, pastors are included. Um, nobody is spared. And with these abductions, you have um, demands in millions of naira, five million, ten million. If it's a pastor, they actually demand, you know, more. 
And there are a number of testimonies where pastors were taken, so much money was demanded, the churches were not able to raise the money. Uh, um, but they were, <coughs> excuse me. They were able to raise some of the money because when it happens, every, every member in the church has to contribute. Families have to contribute and sometimes they pay how to sell off everything they own, every valuable. And um, still, they are not able to raise the amount that is demanded. There are many testimonies of where we prayed and prayed and prayed for certain pastors not to be killed. So they were abducted and they were in the camp for many months. But gratefully, the Lord heard our prayers and they were not killed, even though we had to pay ransom. But they were not killed and were released back. We see that as God's intervention because there are several situations where people are killed. Um, a friend of mine, his brother was taken. Both he and his brother were elders in the church and his brother was taken and we had to gather money, about five million, to pay, but he was killed. So we have both situations where people are killed and situations where after some ransom is paid, um, they are released back. It's hard to compute, isn't that reality? But if you, you know, imagine Donald here being abducted and your membership meeting next week suddenly having to have a change of tack and to come before you and say, you know, guys, Donald has been abducted and we're being asked for half a million pounds um, in order to see him rescued. That's a, you know, it's bringing that home to the reality of what that is like. And as part of one church family, these are our brothers and sisters and it's important that we don't allow a distance to be there that the Father does not invite us to. So in, in the midst of the cost and the challenge, we read in the New Testament, you know, Jesus talks about that with the kingdom advancing, there will also be tribulation, but there will also be signs that the God is greater. What are some of the stories that encourage you that in the midst of things being really difficult, that God is present and God is active? Yeah. Um, we are having Muslims or we are seeing Muslims come to Christ in incredible ways more Muslims coming to Christ today than we have seen you know, many years ago. And the Lord is hearing our prayers. I know people have been praying that Muslims will see visions of Jesus, will have angelic encounters, and, and so on and so forth, and it's happening. Um, many are coming to Christ through dreams. They dream and they see Jesus, and they struggle with the dream. They don't easily come to Christ immediately. They struggle with the dream over a period of time and eventually they realize that this is the truth. Um, there are those coming to Christ through comparative studies. There's a young man who is now a pastor. He came to Christ through, I mean, he was listening to a radio program and his, his parents were very unhappy with him for listening and they actually beat him up and stopped him from listening, but he never stopped, he would listen secretly. And he was hearing the gospel preached and it made him to start comparing the Quran and the Bible. He got a Bible. It took him about five years studying, comparing notes to see what's the truth. But eventually, he came to the conclusion that Jesus is the way. The gospel is the truth. So there are several scenarios. As someone who listened to our radio program for one year, he was a Fulani. He listened for one year, and all that time, he never heard any insult. He never heard anyone cursed. 
He only heard good words, encouraging words. Now he knows what happens on the other side, how their own clerics are always insulting people. And after a one year of listening, he said he's convinced that Jesus is the way, just listening to our program, that we are not insulting anyone. And the beautiful thing is that when these people come to Christ, they're not left alone, they're discipled. And they themselves are reaching out. And we are seeing second generation, third generation, and even fourth generation of Muslims who have come to Christ, reaching out to others and bringing them to Christ. So um, apart from that, there is, a, there is a huge emphasis on preaching the gospel using the social media, using other means. There's a lot of young people. Nigeria has one of the largest um, numbers of young people, Christians, who are in the church. Very, very energetic and active and, and serving the Lord. So vis-a-vis, you know, this almost, you can, you can almost call it a revival happening with prayer and preaching the gospel and, and people really living for the Lord. But on the other hand, you're also seeing incredible fire that the church is going through. I mean, just think about 5,000 people um, within an area of about maybe 500 and, let's say, 550,000 square kilometers, you know, and it's, 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 it's terrific. It's terrible, and the people are afraid. Um, last night, we drove from Cardiff here, and we got here by 12 midnight. You would never think of doing that, you know, in Nigeria. Mm. Seven o'clock, in fact, six o'clock, once it's six o'clock, you don't want to be on the roads because you could be a victim of abduction in any of those roads. So it would be great just to spend a little bit of time praying if people would be up for that. One of the things that uh, the writers of the New Testament do is that they're encouraging believers to stand with believers in other contexts. It's just part of the nature of being the, the people of God. And so I just wonder if, if um, Solomon comes and stands around down here with a few people, whether we could all stand as a sense of being standing with the church in sub-Saharan Africa. But if one or two people could just come and stand around Solomon and just pray a couple of your best prayers, um, that would be great. So do come forward a couple of people, brilliant. Jesus, we thank you that you've called us to serve you, living God. And thank you that you're merciful and patient on us. Help us, Lord, to see you as you are. Help us to love you and, and serve you with our whole hearts. Help us to be what you've called us to be in this world. And Lord, we are sorry here in Sutton Baptist. We're sorry for where we've forgotten our family. Pray, Lord, would you move us beyond the emotion of this evening into doing the practical things that you've called us to do. And we do pray, Lord, would you confuse and stop the plans of the evil one? We pray in particular for Nigeria tonight. We pray, would you stop the evil one from doing what he would do to your children? And would you help us to not feel hatred, but to bless as you've called us to. Would you make your church strong and shine bright in the darkness? We pray, Lord, for Muslim people in our city and all around the world. Would they see you, Jesus, as you are? 
as king, as lord, as God. Pray, Lord, would you be king in our lives. Amen. Amen. Father God, I want to especially thank you and bring to you now our brother Suleiman. And Lord, we're so blessed and honoured that um, he could join us tonight. And we want to uh, commit him, Lord, into your loving care. And Father, I pray for him and his family and uh, Lord, all of our brothers and sisters that he is so faithfully ministering to and serving. And we pray, Lord, that he would know you in such a special and close way, Jesus. Lord, that Suleiman would once again just know the heights and the depth and the breadth of your love for him in Christ. And Lord, that he would know your strength. He would know your equipping. He would know the fresh filling of your Holy Spirit, Lord. Mm. Father, we thank you for him. In Jesus' name. Yes, God. Amen. Amen. Mm, Lord, I don't really know the words to pray uh, for such horrific events. But would you send your presence to the people who are persecuted, Lord, your strength, your grace, your love, would they wake up each morning and just directly see you face to face? Would they know your presence close to them, Lord? Would you guide them? Yeah, show them your love for them. We just pray that you would help them continually count the cost for living for Christ. Give them their faith, the grace, Lord. And we pray for uh, ourselves here as well, Lord. Help us to count the cost. Help us to pray for our brothers and sisters who are persecuted daily, Lord. Yes, would you help us, Lord? Help our brothers and sisters that are being persecuted. Please be with them. Send your presence, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you. I just want to encourage you just to keep on um, praying and just find ways and means of, of praying directly. Do sit down. Thank you. Um, our role really as a, as a ministry is, is to help to connect the global church so that we understand ourselves as one church, we behave as one church, we're aware of what's going on and, and to really close the gap um, that so easily exists because where there is a gap between us and another individual, or where there's a gap between nations, you know, there's separation there. And, and what Jesus prayed in John 17 is that his church would be one, and that through that, that many others would come to um, glorify their God in heaven. This is a lady called Sanghua from North Korea. She said, in persecution, Jesus is all you have, and you discover he is all that you need. There's something beautiful and compelling and also challenging when you are refined in the fire of suffering and persecution, but you realize what really matters, what is of greater worth than anything else. And so I really want to encourage you um, to get connected with the most persecuted, become a part of their story, let their story become a part of your story. If we can resource you in that, that is our absolute delight and honor and privilege to do that. You'll have on your seats or the seat next to you 
um, just a card where you can basically sign up and get sent things like a prayer diary, which will give you about uh, a 30-second prayer to pray each day, and just to keep you connected. Um, you can also get this, which is called the World Watchlist 2024, which overviews the top 50 countries. If you look down here, you'll notice on the map it says 2023 because the 2024 map has not been uh, printed yet. But we'll send you this, which just gives you something just to grow your awareness of the challenges that Christians around the world face um, so that you can pray and be encouraged. We launched this in Parliament about two weeks ago with about 100 MPs. And, uh, and Suleiman made this statement at the end. After all he said, he said to these MPs, we, we don't want your cash. We want something far more worthwhile, something far more costly. We want your moral courage. And just that being spoken into the midst of these MPs, it's just like this kind of, you could just feel like the weight of those words. I thought there's something really prophetic there, that here's a man from a context of extreme persecution challenging the British um, Parliament to stand up for moral courage. But there's also an invitation to us. Will we stand in the gap? And will we count the cost? So please do fill out this and pop it in the little box at the back. There's pens there if you need that. One final story from me. We had another lady who was speaking in Parliament. We had a, a prayer event that evening. She's from Iran, and she told us this story of, of a lady called Auntie. And Auntie is in her 70s. She's kind of um, increasingly hard of hearing, and kind of sight is, is getting diminished, but really, really wanted to speak of Jesus to people. And what she resolved to do is that she would take um, some Gospels on the bus, and she'd sit next to somebody who looked younger on the bus, and then she'd say to them, excuse me, um, my eyes are kind of you know, not so good these days. Uh, would you mind reading this book for me whilst we're on the bus together? So then you'd get these kind of younger people reading a gospel to her on the bus. And then she'd say, I'm, I'm really sorry, dear, but my, ear, my hearing is not so good either. Would you be able to speak up a little bit louder so I can hear what you're saying? And in that way, we'd get the gospel shared on these buses that people listen in. And she'd get to a certain point, she'd oh, this is my stop, thank you. And you can keep that, so you can keep reading it. And she'd get off the bus, then another bus would come along and she'd get on a bus going a different direction and do the same thing again. And I thought, isn't that like inspiring? You know, we have so many kind of reasons that we feel just to challenge that. But what compels her is her compassion for people is greater than her self-consciousness. And one of my prayers is, God, may my compassion for others be greater than my self-consciousness. May my understanding and my encounter with your goodness, your kindness, re-energize my desire to share you with others. Often it's feel like, you know, beat ourselves up. We need to do it. We need to do it. It's not about we need to do it. It's a how can we not do it. That was the story of Peter and disciples when they were brought before the Sanhedrin and they were told, you must no longer speak of Jesus. And like, but how can we not speak of Jesus? Uh, this woman, Auntie, she was eventually uh, pulled in by the secret police and some of our partners on the ground gave her a briefing of what to do in those interrogation settings and said, look, these can last you know, eight hours up to several days. You know, here's some ways to handle it. They were really then surprised when four hours later they had a phone call from Auntie saying, I'm all done, can you come and pick me up like she'd been to the dentist or something. And so they picked her up and they said, what on earth happened? And she says... I don't really know. They told, they asked me, you know, 
uh, why are you talking to people on the bus? And she said, well, I was in a lot of pain. Um, all of the doctors um, couldn't advise me, couldn't help me out at all. And then one night I had a dream, and in that dream, Jesus appeared to me. And Jesus told me what was wrong with me and pointed it out. She said, I came out of that dream and I went and told the doctors. And what Jesus had diagnosed was exactly what the problem was. The doctors intervened and all of my pain went and I'm fine. And she says, as a result of that, my, my son realized that Jesus was true. And my daughter realized that Jesus was true. My grandchildren, and it's, it's amazing, I'm without pain. And, and they're like, okay, okay, but you just must not tell other people about this. And she's like, no, you don't get it. I was in pain. I was in just desperate pain. And I had a, a vision of Jesus. And Jesus told me what it was. And my son has come to follow Jesus. My daughter and my grandchildren are like, yes, okay, we get it. But you just need to know. And she said, no, no, you don't get it. And she told them the story four times over to the point that they were just like, look, okay, just, just go. <laughs> and it's just a brilliant story because she's not sharing Jesus. She's not counting the cost specifically because of the cost. She's counting the cost because of the pearl of great price, because of the treasure in the field, because of the value of Jesus. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't stand in Nebuchadnezzar and refuse to submit to him because they were just obtuse. It's because they knew a greater reality. They knew they had encountered what life was about. They knew the God that was sovereign and the God that was real. And because of that, they were willing to count the cost. So can I just pray for us as we finish, and then I'll hand over to Dan. Jesus, David prays in Psalm 51 that you would restore to him the joy of his salvation. Lord, after he has been caught in sin, he realized, Lord, that he is compromised. And he's lost sight of the joy of what it is to know you. And Lord, we can so easily be just like David. We find ourselves compromising in order to fit in rather than to stand out. Jesus, would you reignite our hearts with the knowledge of who you are, with the knowledge of your good news. Lord, may we not be ashamed of that gospel. And Lord, may we be bold in sharing you with other people. So, Lord, we pray, strengthen our vision of you. Strengthen our faithfulness to you. And, Lord, would you do amazing things that cause people to see you, to find you, to encounter you, to be transformed by you. We bless you, Lord. Amen.